G'day, it's Phil Edwards, Vision CEO here, with a quick invitation to become part of this amazing beacon of hope called Vision. Together we can put our love into action to help people of all kinds build or rebuild their lives on the truth of God. Please consider the part you can play during our upcoming Visionathon appeal, remembering that it's your support that makes Vision possible, including this podcast. Life, Culture and Current Events from a Biblical Perspective, 2020 on Vision. We are going to dive in deep and I think we'll all see ourselves somewhere in the conversation ahead. We're going to be taking a close look at pessimism today. Now we all might be much more pessimistic than we might think. It may be that many of us think that everything's going off the rails, at least somewhere, and lots of people have different ideas about the idea of the end of the world. Progressives, the conservatives, religious believers and secularists, boomers and millennials all have different ideas about what might bring about the end of the world. Well, our special guest today calls them incompatible apocalypses, that everyone has a different sort of idea of what might bring about the end. In fact, we might be adding a new word to our vocabulary today, an apocaholic. I wonder if you could say, I'm an apocaholic, or you might even be uh, quite resistant to the idea of that sort of terminology applying to the way you think about the end of the world. Well, a conversation today about how we feel about a myriad of things to feel pessimistic about, from the coronavirus pandemic to supervolcanoes, robots and transhumanism, to things that are going on today like cancel culture, the post-antibiotic age, the gig economy, the surveillance state, and the cascading effects of climate change. Well, interestingly, Christians have often traditionally been the ones who were accused of doomsaying and sensationalism around the biblical apocalyptic images expressed in books like the book of Revelation in the Bible. But a godless generation may be far more fearful than ever. And if you've read the news today, if you've watched a zombie movie at any time recently, or you've gotten into an argument on Twitter lately, you won't want to miss a moment of our conversation ahead. Our special guest through this coming hour is Dr. Natasha Moore. Natasha is a research fellow at the Centre for Public Christianity. Her new book is called The Pleasures of Pessimism. But before we get to that, and just coincidentally... Natasha has just recently been awarded the prestigious Australian Christian Book of the Year for her work with the Centre for Public Christianity's book called For the Love of God, alongside co-authors John Dixon, Simon Smart and Justine Toe. Let me make a special welcome along to 2020 to Natasha Moore. Natasha, welcome. Thank you, Neil. Great to be here. Well, let me just say a special congratulations on the prestigious award, the Australian Christian Book of the Year. When we set up today's date to talk about your new book, you were anticipating that you would not win. You thought, oh, no, 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 my book's not going to be good enough. And that little bit of humility, now you've got to uh, eat, eat eat humble pie in, sense, in that sense because, hey, you are the winner. So congratulations, just wonderful. 
Oh, thank you, Neil. I'm very happy to be eating that pie. (laughs) (laughs) How did you feel when your name was drawn out? And uh, yes, it's the the Centre for Public Christianity, Natasha Moore, and your name was on it. How did you feel? (laughs) I was mostly shocked, to be honest. I mean, I, I suppose I should have anticipated something because they'd asked me to be ready to um, they were it was an online award ceremony obviously in the current climate um, and uh, they had lined up for me to call in and I assumed that they were just going to ask me a question or two about the book and they were probably interviewing a few of the authors um, but yeah we got later and later in the award ceremony and then they were announcing it and I still hadn't been called on it I thought oh no it's me it's me <laughs> so, and it dawns on you that all of a sudden you're the winner well it's just wonderful and <laughs> you know what we're not going to talk a lot about for the love of God today and I've had a number of conversations over the years but there's been a huge Huge effort from both yourself and co-authors into putting together the For the Love of God project and people can access it not only by the book but from uh, YouTube clips, uh, I think that, you know, the film. Uh, there's all sorts yeah. of wonderful things that have come out from all of the research that went into it. But uh, how do you describe For the Love of God in a nutshell for listeners who might be thinking, well, maybe I ought to get a have a, have a look at that? Yes, it it is a massive project. It's been a labour of love for the whole team over several years. Um, It started out as a documentary, so we have various forms of the documentary um, movie and the um, hour-long episodes and all the segments which you can access at um, betteronworth.film. But we really wanted to make this available in a like a book form as well for people who, like me actually, are more book readers than documentary watchers. And really the whole thing can be summed up by the subtitle, which is how the church is better and worse than you ever imagined. We really, the, the, there are a lot of conversations about Western history and Christian history, and uh, that, that's quite an antagonistic conversation a lot of the time. Um, people uh, kind of hurl accusations or counter um, cases at each other um, about a lot of this controversial history. And we really wanted to say, actually, um, both sides uh, have a lot of truth to them. Um, and we want to honour both sides that actually Christians and the church have done really awful things um, for centuries. Uh, and also there are these wonderful contributions that um, Jesus' teachings and the followers of Jesus have made to our culture. And we can we can hold both of those things together. And, you know, over the years, as I've been following along developments, uh, just a special honour to the Centre for Public Christianity for not sweeping aside uh, some of the dark side of the history of our Christian movement. And, uh, you know, we've got 2,000 years of history. And as you say, there are some pretty bleak periods in that history. And so to be able to bring those out, to explain what those are and to put them in a context. And uh, as you say, it's not all uh, just bringing out the bad history, but acknowledging the bad history and then recognizing all of the good things that have happened in the church that has shaped uh, the whole world culturally. And so uh, so let's uh, just point people to get a hold of the book. It's called For the Love of God. And of course, uh, from the Center for Public Christianity and uh, just acknowledging those co-authors with you, John Dixon, Simon Smart and Justine Toe. And our special guest today is Natasha Moore, who really uh, took on uh, lots of the, the book writing because this is this is what you love. You are a wordsmith. You are just a, a fabulous writer. And look, I've taken a little bit of time and 
and dipped into and uh, read your latest book, which is short and easy to read and is glowing in the way that it it just uh, articulates some of the issues here. It's called The Pleasures of Pessimism. And uh, let me just start with this, Natasha. Uh, you discovered that in writing your latest book that you are actually an optimist and not a pessimist. Tell us all about yeah. that. Yeah, I think it was a bit of a surprise to me. Um, maybe I'd never really thought about it or maybe I think of myself as a little bit um, cynical, but uh, in the course of writing what was a public lecture and then this book, I kind of was like, oh, maybe I should take a few of those online quizzes, which I'm sure are not at all reliable, right? <laughs> but, but even answering the questions about whether you generally think things are going to work out and all those kinds of things, I went, oh, I'm actually much more optimistic um, than I thought. And I think working through the issues, um, going, okay, what are some of the things that are going wrong in our world? Um, how should we think and feel about the future? Um, what does um, the Bible, what does my faith have to say about this? I actually found very heartening overall um, that, that looking unflinchingly um, at what is the case and what might be coming down the line um, made me more and not less optimistic. When we talk about disasters and dystopia, the idea, you know, what the the world will look like if all the baddies take over, uh, or uh, if all of sorts of these disasters uh, really cause us to, you know, go backwards, uh, there's a certain mm-hmm. sense in which these things are happening all the time. And right now you can look for a whole lot of disasters and dystopian ideals about what is coming for the future, and and we. This is what your book is about. It's it's not a, a focus on any one of them, but it's about how we see them and what's so appealing about disasters and the end of the world as we know it. So, if you were if you were trying to sort of boil it down into a into a short response, how would you say uh, what is it that it, that makes it so appealing about disasters and the end of the world? I think there are a number of things. Um, we might want to say that actually we don't enjoy our pessimism at all. We'd much rather be hearing good news about the future um, and be, you know, projecting utopias and thinking what's what's going to be absolutely great um, uh, in the next 10, 20, 30 years. Um, but actually, I think our, um, you know, our online habits, uh, our news consumption, and so on. For starters, are against us there, um, and our movie watching habits and all the rest. But we love this stuff. We love thinking about, you know, what would it look like if society collapsed all of a sudden? I think partly because that's, I mean, it's kind of there's something thrilling about watching those kinds, particularly in a movie where it's not threatening. Um, we're just kind of playing out the potential scenario. Um, it's entertaining. Um, it's exciting. Uh, but also I think there's something a bit, uh, it's a way for us of um, registering to ourselves what we're not satisfied with in, with the status quo as it is. Um, you know, we don't want things to fall apart, but also I think we've seen this this year that um, in a crisis, in a kind of, let's say, mini apocalypse when everything goes uh, very differently to how we thought it would be, um, there's a lot of loss and um, horror and uh, difficulty in that. But there's also uh, a kind of opportunity for us to rethink things like what's really important to me? Um, how would we like to do society? Uh, is there a way of using a crisis 
to make things better, to remake things. Um, and I think that our the way that we think about the future as kind of uh, disastrous and doom and gloomy um, is actually an outlet for us to think through those big questions about what we would like life and society to look like. So if we are concerned about every disaster that comes, and of course we are going to be concerned uh, of recent times, mm. of course, you know, let's take it over the last 12 months, we were into the worst drought ever. And then we had the worst bushfire season ever. And then we've got coronavirus on top of that. And what I can hear you saying there is that there is a certain sense in which uh, you can contextualise some of those things. I wonder whether you've got any thoughts on what it is, and uh, let's talk about this early as well, the idea of being a person of faith, having faith in God, knowing that even in the book of Revelation, in the Bible, we're going to be talking about some of those things, an apocalypse of the future, the idea of having a context for where all of these disaster things might fit in. Any thoughts on that? Certainly. I mean, where I end up in the book um, is really that how you uh, cope with and process crisis as it comes um, and also how you think about the future and whether things are going to get better or worse or both, um, some combination of those. Um, ultimately, I think the way that you address those things is going to be a function of what you believe about what the world is like. So if you think that... Um, Everything is just kind of a cosmic accident. The fact that we exist is just kind of maybe a lucky or unlucky accident, depending on how you think about things. And, um, you know, everything's a bit random and things might get better or they might get worse, but who knows? Um, then it's much harder to have some kind of faith in um, things getting better in the future or us being able to cope with the challenges that come to us. Um, but if you think that, the world was created by a God who uh, is a God of justice, um, a God of mercy, um, a God of grace, a God who loves um, beauty and creativity. Um, it doesn't mean that you're going to be like, oh, everything's going to be just fine. Don't worry about anything. Um, but it does mean that you think that hope is built in. You know, it's not kind of an accident. It's not a trick we need to play on ourselves. Um, you know, things don't go just onwards and upwards constantly. Um, lots of things can go wrong and lots of things do go wrong in history and in um, our culture. Um, but actually, uh, if, if there is that kind of God, if the world does have some sort of bent towards hope and justice, um, then I think that gives an impetus to our, to our, our efforts, actually, make things go better. And not worse. You need a kind of, you need that encouragement, right? That you're not just kind of um, shouting into the whirlwind when you're <laughs> trying to um, make things better, not worse. But actually, uh, you have some kind of backing. Um, you have the backing of uh, a universe that is not random and cold and cruel. You have the backing of a God who is, um, who cares about justice and who wants things to be better. Wow. A biblical perspective on life, culture and current events. This is 2020 on Vision Christian Radio. Our special guest this hour is Dr. Natasha Moore, Research Fellow at the Centre for Public Christianity. We're talking about Natasha's new book and uh, it's all about pessimism. I wonder whether you might like to join in our conversation today. 
The Pleasures of Pessimism is the title of Natasha's book. It's part of a series of books coming from the Centre for Public Christianity called Reconsidering, looking at what's familiar from an unfamiliar angle to consider how we consider things and how to do things better. Natasha, let's uh, let's come back to some of the uh, the dreadful things, the end of the world, and just to pick up on a headline or two. And you've mentioned things like, you know, headlines, cockroaches are becoming immune to pesticide or IQ rates are falling in developed countries. Uh, This indoor sedentary lifestyle that we all have is killing us. Uh, The idea that Tinder is the dating apocalypse. There are all sorts of ways, and I wonder, there might be some journalistic flair in framing some things that it makes it sound like the end of the world or that's giving you know more priority and making things a a higher priority or more scary than they ordinarily would be what are your thoughts about headlines that attract our Mm. attention well there is a sense isn't there that unless something is uh highly dramatic and urgent we're unlikely to click on it Right. This is the way that um, kind of an online news cycle works. Um, attention is a scarce and precious resource, and so how do you corner more of it? You have to you have to ramp up um, what's wrong, what the problems are. People don't click on good news as much as they click on bad news, and they don't click on bad news as much as they click on um, crisis, the end of the world as we know it. And almost anything that's going wrong, which is always a lot of things, you know, we live in a very messy, messed up world. So there's always a lot going wrong. Um, But we can couch those things in terms of um, apocalypse. It doesn't just have to be the big ones, you know, global pandemic, um, Western century, uh, climate change, uh, the kind of, you know, really big ticket items. Um, Actually, any of those smaller, um, more localised crises can be couched in these terms as well. Um, and I think that, like, I, I, I get that. It's sort of more entertaining and it's more likely to garner the attention that these, these genuine problems need um, to have focused on them. But I think it also, it sort of numbs us. Um, it makes us more anxious and it makes us more numb and just a bit overwhelmed and makes it hard to actually... Uh, cope with crises because we're like, well, everything is just a disaster. So what am I meant to do? Uh, So I think it actually, um, rather than um, galvanizing us to action, oh, we need to do something about all these terrible things that are going on, it kind of makes us throw up our hands and go, well, what are you going to do? Everything's a disaster. (laughs) Hey, the word alarmism comes to mind as you're describing Mm. those things, uh, the sensational way, the clickbait, the way that journalists can frame things uh, to attract our attention. Uh, People talk about climate alarmism or corona alarmism. There's a lot of alarmism that's going on right now. And and this word alarmism, I suppose you could put it onto all of these, you know, cockroach alarmism. Uh, you know, they're immune to pesticide. They're taking over the world. So you've got cockroach alarmism. So you could you could put that on the end of almost every one of those uh, those topics, couldn't you? Well, and the difficulty is that you know the fact that there is such a thing as alarmism uh, doesn't mean that there's nothing to be alarmed about. Um, and I think that's a real issue in the way that we couch everything um, in apocalyptic terms is that we stop being able to distinguish between what we, sh- what we need to be genuinely alarmed about and therefore, you know, uh, 
calmly, rationally responding to, um, taking serious action um, to fix, uh, and what we just, you know, should kind of be a bit more circumspect about. Um, so there, there are, you know, there are extremes that we want to avoid here. Um, I think at either end of the spectrum, you know, you take uh, uh, climate change as an example. At one end of the spectrum, you have people who say, oh, no, it's, it's fine. It's all going to be fine. We don't need to do anything. Um, let's, just, let's just ignore it. Um, and at the other end of the spectrum, you might have people who are like, well, there's actually nothing we can do because it's so bad that it, it won't make any difference. Um, and in both of those cases, those people very much disagree on what's going on, but both of them will take no action to make things better, to you know, help us to uh, interact with uh, nature and with our lived environment in better, um, less polluting, less destructive ways. Um, so both of those are a problem, you know, whether it's alarmism or not. And I think, you know, we have different stories for this and it's, it's, it's a real wisdom thing as to how we uh, interpret and engage with these kinds of um, issues. So, you know, on, on the one hand, you have kind of chicken little, um, that, that story of the chicken who's like, oh, you know, an, an acorn falls on his head or something and um, chicken little, it's like, oh, this guy is falling in, I need to go and tell the king. Um, and we don't want to be chicken little. So we don't want to be kind of, oh, this guy is falling down um, if on issues where it perhaps isn't um, or in ways that that's just going to make us, as you say, alarmist. Um, but on the other hand, um, if we don't pay attention to genuine warning signs of things going wrong, um, then that really compromises our ability to meet those challenges and to head off uh, crises in the future. Yes, well, alarmism, as you say, and uh, what a wonderful illustration that you bring out in your book too. Uh, little uh, Chicken Little says the sky is falling and uh, all that's happened with Chicken Little is that an acorn has fallen on Chicken Little's head. And at the end of the day, uh, you know, people, well, the animals realise uh, that uh, the sky is not falling, that all it was was an acorn falling. But this idea of alarmism, and you say it makes us numb, and I can't help but think... I wonder if there is some way that you can prioritise those things that are uh, to be alarmed about because, as you say, when so many things are there to be alarmed about, uh, they crowd out, no doubt, uh, the things that are important. And I wonder whether you've got any thoughts on the idea of of getting some sort of a priority list of understanding what's important to be alarmed about. Yeah, that's a really great question. Um, I... I think a lot of this for us will have to do with our news intake, um, our news consumption, what we're looking at online, on Facebook, on um, you know, traditional media, uh, on TV. What are we consuming and how is that affecting us? Is it making us generally? anxious about the world um, you know one of the one of the findings um, in my reading for this uh, was that a, a lot of work has been done on this um, particularly in the US but elsewhere as well um, that a lot of people who feel very optimistic and positive about their own life the things that they know firsthand their local community um, those same people will be very negative about um, how we're doing as a country or how, you know, things are going globally. They're like, oh, everything's, everything's going to the dogs. But here, my actual experience of the people around me, um, the community that I'm part of, I have a lot of hope for that. 
Um, and so there's this real kind of um, disconnect between, um, you know, the, the situation that we know firsthand um, and the situation that we know only through the news. And when there's, there's a big gap between those things, I think we, we want to be able to ask, well, what am I feeding myself? Um, what, what is my intake and how is it affecting me? Is it making me um, anxious? Uh, Natasha, let me come to the idea that we as Christian believers uh, are often, you know, in times past, decades gone before, perhaps centuries gone before, we've been the ones who people have pointed to and said, uh, you're the ones who are fear-mongering, you're the ones who are the pessimists because we've had all sorts of ideas of a biblical Armageddon. I wonder if you've got any thoughts about Christians and this idea of pessimism. Well, the end of the world has, I think, never been exclusive to Christians. You know, Christians have kind of talked about it and done some thinking about it and got quite a few texts um, that we go to uh, that we think shed light on where things are all headed. Um, But all humans, I think, in every culture have some instincts about um, how things might end, whether there will be an end, what it will be like, um, you know, how soon it's coming. Um, and plenty of people have made very confident predictions over the centuries and millennia about when uh, everything's going to wind up. Um, so I think this is, this is an instinct that humans have. Um, we have uh, kind of a, a progress instinct, at least we in kind of modern Western culture have a very strong progress instinct that surely things get better and better and better. Um, we can improve them, improve them, improve them. But at the same time, we have a declinist uh, instinct, a kind of, oh, everything might be, you know, this this might be the end of the line for the progress that we're so um, uh, glad of. Uh, and maybe from here, we're going to lose everything that we have, which is a lot. Um, and that maybe everything's you know, just about to go off the rails. Interesting you've used a word there that is going to be new for lots of listeners, uh, the idea of being a declinist, uh, mm. the idea that things are winding down and getting worse all of the time. And, and you know what I think in the Christian community and listeners to our conversation today, some are going to be uh, saying that, of course, things are winding down, getting worse and uh, worse, and things are going to get even, uh, you know, uh, to a point where it's going to be so bad that uh, the only answer will be Jesus' return. And, of course, Jesus' return, really important because that's one of those central tenets of our Christianity, that uh, Jesus is returning. There's another set of Christians, on the other hand, who are sort of saying that, you know, there'll be a triumphal time of things going so well at the end. And so you've got this declinism, uh, but different Christians looking at things a whole lot more differently around issues of what's coming with Armageddon and the end of the world. What are your thoughts on on the fact that you can probably hold different positions on what's happening in the end? Yeah, that's right. I mean, these are complicated issues. um, And uh, I think the Bible gives us really um, some really clear pastoral advice on how to think about the future and the end of the world. Um, It offers an assurance that actually God's got it, um, that there's a uh, there's a U catastrophe to come. This is a term that um, Tolkien, who wrote Lord of the Rings, um, liked to use. Um, you know, there's a catastrophe, but a U catastrophe is a sudden overturning that's a good catastrophe. Um, and that, that, that the Christian faith um, really uh, believes in that, 
that there's going to come a time where God is going to wipe every tear from um, from our eyes. Um, he's going to bring true justice and um, reveal uh, all of what's been hidden um, and make everything that is wrong right again. You know, that's the kind of background um, context for the Christian. Um, and I think our, our culture has been very influenced, obviously, by what Christians believe about the end of the world. Um, so partly the sort of um, everything being burned up with fire and the horsemen of the apocalypse and the beast and all these kind of um, this very dramatic imagery that gets used in the book of Revelation in particular, um, but also that underpinning hope um, and desire for justice, yearning for things to be better. Both of those strands of Christian thought have influenced our culture. Um, I think one of the things that we're seeing at the moment in the way that, um, you know, we talk about uh, crises and the way that we talk about the end of the world um, is that we're seeing a lot more of the judgment doom thread in our conversation and not very much of the hope grace thread. Um, so a lot of the kind of uh, negative futures that we um, project, the kind of dystopias, um, the kind of techno dystopias, the, uh, the climate um, collapses, all those kinds of things have a sort of a negativity about, um, you know, this is, this is, these are things that humans have done or are doing. Um, it's our fault um, that everything's going to get much, much worse. Um, and so it has that element of like judgment, we've done the wrong thing. But what it often lacks is that sense of grace and hope that the Bible really majors on alongside, you know, not that the judgment is uh, not correct, um, not accurate, not useful, not true, but that also um, if there is a God who cares for us, cares for his creation, um, there is, you know, all hope is not lost. We're still headed somewhere good overall. Wonderful insight when you think of the idea of a good catastrophe is coming, uh, that this promise that Jesus has to return and uh, those events that we would look at in the book of Revelation and uh, the idea of the apocalypse, because sometimes we talk about the book of Revelation and we'd say that it's written in apocalyptic language. And you touch on it in your book, the way that apocalypse doesn't necessarily always mean uh, all the bad things that are going to happen at the end of the world. But in fact, apocalypse is uh, something of an, a deeper understanding of an unveiling. And so you have mm. the bad things that are coming, but you also have, as you describe it so beautifully, a good catastrophe is coming. So uh, this word apocalypse, uh, as Christians, we have a different idea of looking at that. It's not just all negative, is it? No, and the word apocalypse actually, I mean, we, we've come to use it to mean any kind of massive disaster. Um, you know, kind of the end of the world as we know it, that's what an apocalypse is. Uh, we have post-apocalyptic literature and so on, what happens after the disaster, um, if that's, you know, a meaningful thing to ask. Um, but actually the word apocalypse just means um, unveiling or uncovering. Um, revelation, actually. This is, so, you know, the final book of the Bible, which we commonly call Revelation now, um, has also traditionally be, been called by Christians the apocalypse. Um, it's the same word. Uh, and actually a lot of Bible scholars, which, you know, I'm not one of them. Um, I'm just relying on their kind of 
teaching here. Um, but a lot of them will say, look, actually, you read Revelation. It's not about, it, it talks about these end of the world things, but it's not about um, giving you a roadmap, a kind of blueprint to like, here's um, all the things that go wrong and what you need to do is match up um, all of those um, different stories and points to things that you're seeing in the world around you. Um, but actually what Revelation is doing is saying, look, here's a picture of power um, and injustice um, in the world around you. Everything seems kind of messy and chaotic and um, ominous and threatening. Actually, let's lift the lid off. Let's unveil um, apocalypse, revelation. Behind that reality is a deeper reality where actually God is in charge, where Jesus is Lord, even if it doesn't look like it all the time. And that therefore, you're okay. Christians have hope. Um, you have, you know, uh, reason to be patient and hopeful in the face of um, a lot of really difficult things, a lot of real crises, um, because uh, the, re the deeper reality beyond all that chaos and crisis um, is something good and something um, beautiful and, uh, yeah, something hopeful. Hope is really where I want to arrive in the book. And if you've got that context as a Christian believer, then there's no reason not to be, at least in a balanced way, optimistic for the future. We'll get to some more of that in just a few moments. Taking calls on 1-800-316-316. Let's take a call from Norman in Innisfail in North Queensland. Norman, welcome along. Hello, how are you? Very well, Norman. What are your um, thoughts? Look, I think your response to the concept of a cataclysm is being negative. I, I think it's a time, the last days is a time for rejoicing. This is how it's been explained to me. For 50 years, God has guided and protected and healed me for a purpose. And on the 14th of February 2018, I was awoken in a dream um, of an intense fire. I was in the middle of it, of an intense fire, so hot that I was sweating in the dream state. And and I could smell the intense smell of reactive fire, wires of the fire. And what is he explaining to me that this time he can't protect me, that this is the harvest, the time of the harvest. And I, my approach now is that it's a time of rejoicing that this, this million tons of radiation that will burn up the atmosphere is not a bad thing. It's, this is the judgment day. This is the time of the harvest. Norman, good thoughts in there, and in some sense we've been touching on some of those things, how you get a balance and appreciate that there are good things and the expectation of a good catastrophe coming at the way that the apocalypse may unveil. And Natasha, any thoughts at all for Norman? Yeah, I um, I mean, joy is such a wonderful thing to raise in this context, um, that uh, the New Testament is very big on joy. Is always a response that Christians are to have um, to their circumstances because no matter how um, good or bad those circumstances are, that uh, God is with us, that he has given us so much, so many good things, that he has uh, rescued us and uh, joy is always um, a rational and a um, righteous response to that. Um, I think... Um, one thing that I'd, I'd also wanted to uh, keep in mind is that uh, a response that Christians are also to have to the world is 
service, right? So um, I think if a rejoicing in um, what Norman calls the end times uh, means uh, not minding what's going wrong and not doing anything about it, then I think, and I'm I'm not saying that Norman is saying that, um, but I think that leaves out um, the part of things are actually uh, in response to things that are genuinely going wrong. Um, Christians are not to sit back and say, eh, you know, it's all going to go off the rails, that's fine. Um, we're actually called to make things better, to love our neighbours, to uh, seek justice, to love mercy, to walk with God in that way. Um, Well, great stuff. Norman, thank you so much for your call. And interesting when Norman says joy, and uh, you have begun to qualify that and joined joy with service because it would seem a little bit crazy, wouldn't it, that when disasters are happening, uh, you've got Christians gathering around the table all uh, with smiles on their faces and uh, raising their hands in worship and being joyful in the face of disaster because that would be an overbalancing there because when you mm. bring service in there, you recognise that, Uh, We might have a sense of joy because of the emotion that comes because we're in this worldview that we have as Christian believers, but that also prods us on to actually care for those around us when disaster comes. So uh, joy and service, they might go hand in hand here, Natasha. Yeah, that's right. And it's about the command to mourn with those who mourn and rejoice with those who rejoice. Um, You know, we can always rejoice because God is bigger and um, better than anything else that's going on. Um, but that, that joy actually gives us the capacity to mourn and lament with those who are mourning um, and with the things that are going really wrong with our world. And, um, yeah, really kind of mobilizing as um, individuals, as the church, as communities, all kinds of communities um, to avert crises, not to, you know, we don't want to revel in them. Um, the way that, you know, I talk about the pleasures of pessimism. But wonderful, isn't it, to take it that step deeper beyond the scratching of the surface and the shallows to say that when we're talking about these sorts of issues as Christian believers, uh, we're not just shallow and we're not even just on an intellectual level here, but when we are able to consider what comes because of belief in our eternal transcendent God, uh, one of those things that wells up in us is not intellectual at all in that sense of uh, what we feel, but we can sense the joy of the Lord because we know that, as you said a little earlier, we know that he's got it, he's got our backs, he's got the future. And so we can have this joy even in the way that we can be immersed in even a catastrophe. Yeah, and I hope that um, you know the way that... Uh, Christians respond to crisis. So, you know, you look at things that are going on around the world um, with COVID. Um, there have been very different responses, obviously, across the political spectrum, across the religious spectrum. Um, but uh, I really uh, hope that those who believe in a God who has got us, <laughs> yes. um, who, is look, who can look after um, his creatures, his creation, um, I hope that those people will be the ones who are most active in, uh, you know, trying to uh, make things better, trying to care for the vulnerable. Actually, this is, you know, the thing that uh, Jesus goes on and on about, uh, the Old Testament prophets go on and on about, um, where are we looking to, um, 
what Jesus calls the least of these, the people who are poor and struggling, um, who are most affected by, you know, the like the current the pandemic, for example. Um, you know, last week was the end COVID for all push. Yep. Um, are we thinking about not just kind of all um, the the you know the <laughs> doomsday prepper um, cliche of like batten down the hatches? I'm going to look after my people, but actually. What is this like for the people that Jesus paid most attention to? Um, I want to be paying attention to that as well. We've asked a question on our Facebook page today. Do you think pessimism about the end of the world affects the way we live our lives today? And uh, there's been a bunch of responses there. Val says, a new age or era is coming. How we view things depends on our worldview. Only a biblical worldview will make sense of what is happening and will give us the answers. Any thoughts for Val in the the way that she's thinking about the way we view the world uh, and a biblical view having all of those uh, wonderful benefits perhaps above every other worldview? Any thoughts here? Mm, I I certainly agree that um, what we believe about what the world is like and what human nature is like um, is really going to determine um, how we think about the future um, and how we kind of react to and try to shape um, that future. Um, you know, I am a Christian because I certainly find the biblical worldview the most um, uh, satisfying intellectually um, and emotionally and spiritually. Um, and, you know, we do, we do live in a culture that's actually heavily influenced by that worldview. So even if, um, you know, some people... Uh, will say, well, actually, everything about the world is random and things could go either way. Um, Christian influence is so pervasive that I think not many people can really follow through on that. Um, you know, people are naturally have have hope springs eternal. You know, <laughs> that something built into um, human nature that makes us go. Mm, I'm always kind of anticipating that things things might get better and I want them to get better. And that's not just the kind of evolutionary byproduct that maybe we're created that way. Um, so, yeah, I think that uh, we, whatever, whatever our um, particular worldview, whatever we're bringing to this, um, what I really want to do in the book, um, you know, it's not trying to solve all the world's problems, um, but I'd like, I want us to kind of be self-aware about these things, to notice, what our diet is that we're consuming um, about the end of the world and the different crises going on in the world um, and noticing what's going on for, you know, each of us as we deal with all that. Am I optimistic? Am I pessimistic? Why Why am I worried? Um, is that a valid reason? Um, what kind of response is it producing in me? Is it making me uh, fearful and anxious and inward looking or is it making me um, more generous and open and keen to um, make the world better? improve my community, be there for other people. And Natasha, just a couple of minutes in our conversation, I do want to ask you, there's so much to cover here, but I know that facts are important and uh, you've drawn attention to a favourite author now that has come to light uh, in your studies on all of this idea about pessimism, Hans Rosling, and uh, he wrote a book called Factfulness, Ten Reasons We're Wrong About the World and Why Things Are Better Than You Think. Uh, What are your thoughts on how facts fit uh, in the way that we make sense of all of the pessimistic things that are going on around us? Well, this is crucial, isn't it? Um, 
you know, there's our our background worldview, the thing that shapes the facts, you know, how we interpret the facts that come our way. But if those facts themselves are not accurate in the first place, then um, that's really going to throw off our calculations and our responses. Um, so Hans Rosling, you know, was a uh, like a public health expert and a doctor and um, and he was very concerned with aid and development. Um, and he was very like, actually, I go around the world talking to even the people, people who are aid workers and work in government and um, not-for-profits and all these things. And even they, the people most involved in dealing with things like extreme poverty, um, don't know how much better things have gotten in the last, you know, 20, 30, 40 years. Um, that extreme poverty has like halved in the last 20 years. Things like that where um, these things are surprising um, and surprisingly positive. Um, and I find his approach very helpful because he's like, look, these facts are actually really positive, but he doesn't as a result go, therefore, don't worry about anything. Um, he says things can be both bad and better, um, and that if we have those facts about, okay, here's what's actually going wrong, it's not let's not imagine things are worse than they are, let's not imagine things are better than they are, let's look at those facts, and then we can be grateful for how things have improved where they have, um, and we can redouble our efforts um, to make them better in the future. Uh, so, yeah, his factful approach I think is a really helpful one for everybody if you're a Christian or not a Christian whatever you believe um, we believe in fact well it's great isn't it to uh, to have the advice that says check the bubble that you're in and uh, get into a place where uh, you can uh, easily ascertain uh, what's happening factfully uh, and also uh, just check what influences are coming and whether it's actually leading you to pessimism or whether you have some level of optimism that can fit in there and understanding what you believe as a Christian believer, uh, what you understand about the coming of the end of the world, uh, that it may actually not all be bad, because we're expecting a positive a cataclysmic time when the coming of Jesus actually brings things to uh, to the, the culmination of the end. Well, Dr. Natasha Moore has just been absolutely wonderful, and there's so much more we could talk about this, and I know that there'll be listeners who are eager to find out some more about uh, some of these pessimistic things that we've started to uncover, and we've only just scratched the surface. I mean, you might have even heard about the uh, the jellyfish apocalypse. Well, that you'll have yeah. to you'll have to get a hold of Natasha's book to find out what she's saying about that. Uh, the book is uh, is uh, is called The Pleasures of Pessimism, and let me also mention in the same breath because Natasha has uh, just received just recently the uh, prestigious Australian Christian Book of the Year Award for her work with the Centre for Public Christianity and her co-authors John Dixon, Simon Smart and Justine Toe for the love of God. So uh, listeners are going to want to get a hold of those books. So the two books today we're talking about for the love of God and of course the pleasures of pessimism. Uh, you might check uh, Christian bookstores. You can go to the website, publicchristianity.org. That's the website for the Centre for Public Christianity, The Pleasures of Pessimism, part of a series of books that are coming out of the Centre for Public Christianity right now called Reconsidering, Looking at What's Familiar from an Unfamiliar Angle. And Natasha, just great getting your insights today. Wonderful to talk to you. And let's do this again before too long on another topic. But thanks so much for taking some time to share your thoughts with listeners on 2020. Thanks so much for having me, Neil. Great chat. 
Thanks for taking time to listen to this audio on demand from Vision Christian Media. To find out more about us, go to vision.org.au. 